interesting that we see here is the, the question itself in verse 14. So we read, again, then the disciples of John came to him, to Jesus. And this John is John the Baptist. Just like Jesus had disciples, he had followers, learners, followed him. So John the Baptist had disciples as well. And um, it's helpful for us to remember that the reason why these disciples of John are on their own and approach Jesus on their own is that at this point, G um, John the Baptist was in prison. We saw that back in Matthew chapter 12 and verse uh, Matthew chapter 4, excuse me, in verse 12, Matthew wrote, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, that's Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. John the Baptist is in prison. Uh, a couple chapters later, chapter 11, John's going to send word back to Jesus, asking Jesus, is he the one that they're supposed to be waiting on? So uh, apparently the time of suffering in prison, as it would do to any of us, it, it uh, wore away at John's faith. But in any event, that's why these disciples of John, on their own, go to Jesus. And then here's the question that they ask Jesus. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. So we and the Pharisees, these disciples of John the Baptist, sadly, had aligned themselves with the Pharisees. And remember, that's the same group that their leader, John the Baptist, had uh, previ previously said you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. That was in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. Ironic that now that uh, John the Baptist is uh, away from them and these disciples are like followers without a leader, that they end up aligning themselves with this brood of vipers as John the Baptist himself labeled them. And why would these disciples of John the Baptist find common ground with the Pharisees. Well, remember, John the Baptist himself lived an ascetic lifestyle. He, he lived in the desert wilderness. This is a desert as well, but uh, Ridgecrest itself, and especially compared to the Judean wilderness, Ridgecrest is not a wilderness, but uh, John the Baptist lived out in the desert wilderness. He wore clothes made of camel's hair, and he ate locusts and wild honey. It was very, very simple, very rough. He lived an ascetic lifestyle. And uh, he and his disciples fasted often. That's what we read in Luke 5 and verse 33. Probably even twice a week, like the Pharisees did. 
We, we read about that detail in Luke chapter 18 in the uh, story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Remember, the, the Pharisee is basically bragging about himself to God in his prayer, saying how he tithes of, uh, of all of his possessions, including his spices, and he fasts twice a week. That's because that's what the Pharisees were known for. And uh, apparently John the Baptist and his disciples did the same thing, not because John the Baptist was a Pharisee. John the Baptist had a heart for God. He had a heart for Jesus. That's why John the Baptist, when uh, Jesus came onto the scene during his baptizing ministry, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, that's why John the Baptist also said about Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. So when John the Baptist lived an ascetic lifestyle, it was attached with a humble, Christ-oriented heart. The Pharisees didn't have a humble, Christ-oriented heart. Their asceticism was not attractive at all. It was judgmental towards other people. It was self-righteous. It was condemning. And it seems that these uh, disciples of John the Baptist may have caught some of that uh, Phariseeism. And so they approach Jesus and they uh, ask him why they and the Pharisees fast, but his disciples don't fast. One other thing to point out here about this fast or this fasting. Um, this fasting that the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist observed was not uh, required by the law of God. The, the Old Testament does not require this twice-a-week fasting. In fact, the only fast required in the Old Testament was the fast associated with the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. You could read about that in Leviticus chapter 16. And even with respect to that fast, the Day of Atonement fast, it's not called a fast. But the commandment in that particular law says to uh, afflict your souls on that day of atonement, which was taken to mean fast, along with humbling yourselves before the Lord. So all that to clarify that it's not as if the Pharisees and these disciples of John the Baptist were actually keeping the law of God and Jesus and his disciples weren't. There was no such law. Instead, these disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees were observing a religious tradition that Jesus and his disciples did not. So that's the question. And now Jesus gives his answer. It's a threefold answer. He uh, answers their question in the form 
of three illustrations. And the first one has to do with the bridegroom. So notice verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So this uh, image in Jesus' illustration is the image of a Jewish wedding, a wedding feast, which usually lasted seven days. And it was a, a joyous occasion. It was celebratory. It wouldn't make any sense for somebody to attend a seven-day wedding feast and fast. No, you go to a seven-day wedding feast in order to feast and to celebrate. And Jesus goes on with, with the illustration. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So now Jesus is actually comparing himself to the bridegroom. And he's comparing his disciples to the, um, those who would participate in the wedding feast. And here he's referring to his own death upon the cross. That's when he would be taken away from them. And back to the image, it makes no sense to be fasting during a wedding feast, but if for some reason the bridegroom is snatched away and killed, then the celebration and the feasting would give way to fasting. Then it would make sense. But as long as the bridegroom is with them, fasting was not appropriate. But it is very interesting that Jesus compares himself with the bridegroom because that is, a, that is a picture, a word picture, that the Old Testament uses a number of times to describe the relationship between Jehovah, Yahweh, God, and Israel. And uh, here's one example, Isaiah 62 and verse 5. There's other examples, Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 6, and Hosea Chapter 2, verses 16 through 20. Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 5 says this. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God compares himself to a bridegroom. Jesus compares himself to a bridegroom. Jesus is fulfilling the role of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Just as he has the, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, the beginning of the chapter, so here Jesus is the uh, anticipated bridegroom for God's people in the Old Testament. So that's his first illustration, the bridegroom. Um, the second illustration uh, is in verse 16, and I'll read that for you. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth 
and an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. So now, this uh, motif of old versus new enters into Jesus' explanation. The uh, old thing here is an old garment. And 2,000 years ago, just like today, garments, fabrics tend to shrink. And especially back then when most clothes were made out of either wool or linen, they were very prone to, to shrinkage. And so uh, if you had an old garment and there was a big old hole, needed a patch, the common sense thing to do is to first get a piece of material, pre-wash it, pre-shrink it, and then sew it onto that, that old garment. Because if you don't go through that process, then eventually the unshrunk patch is going to shrink and then it's going to end up ruining the whole thing. Then the third illustration, that's in verse 17, new wine put into old wineskins. And here I'll, I'll gross you out a little bit maybe. Yeah, there. He says in verse 17, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. And, and this is more representative of a first century wineskin. It's, it's an animal skin. Uh, the, the animal would be uh, gutted the skin would be removed and the various holes would be sewn up. Uh, the, the place where the head was, that would be the pouring spout and that would be a uh, container for wine. And animal skins are elastic when they're fresh. Wine, especially new wine, as the fermentation process continues, it gives off carbon dioxide gas, and so it, ex it, it expands. And so as long as you have a new wineskin, then new wine, new wineskin, good combination, the new wineskin will gradually expand to accommodate the fermenting wine. But if you allow um, the wineskin to age, it becomes brittle and stiff, and it won't expand. And so if you put new wine in an old wineskin, then eventually the um, old wineskin will, will burst. So this is a polite wineskin. So that is Jesus' third illustration. And uh, it begs the question, well, what's old and what's new in these two illustrations. The, the new is the new life of faith in Christ. It's the new way of following God and knowing God and worshiping God through faith in Christ. That's what's 
new. But what's old? And remember, Jesus compares himself to the bridegroom. To make that even more clear. It's, it's tempting to assume that the old cloth and the old wineskins represent the Old Testament law. But as we've already seen, um, fasting, the kind of fasting practiced by the Pharisees and these disciples of John the Baptist, that's not found in the Old Testament law. And besides that, Jesus doesn't cancel out the whole Old Testament or even the law. He said back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And indeed, there's grace in the Old Testament and there's law in the New Testament. There's lots of commands that we're given to obey. So we shouldn't think that the old thing is just law and the new thing is grace. Or the old thing is the Old Testament and the new thing is the gospel. It's not as as simple as that. Instead, what Jesus is talking about directly, what he's immediately responding to, is the practice of these disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees. And what were the Pharisees, for example, famous for? They were famous for taking a kernel of truth from the scriptures and then expanding it and adding to it so that there's this tradition of man, the tradition of the elders, the tradition of men that is the result. It was a works-based system of religion. It was man-centered. And that is what Jesus is addressing. The the new thing is uh, faith in Christ, this new life in, in Christ. The old thing is men and women seeking to justify themselves coming up with these religious schemes, these systems of morality by which they justify themselves. They commend themselves before God. And Jesus, in a scheme like that, is is just another step to add to it. Uh, Just a patch to put onto this existing garment. And Jesus says, nope. I don't fit into that. This new life is totally new. It's brand new compared to what you're used to, compared to what you you expect. You, You come to me, and what you need actually is the new birth. And what I give you is new life. I have come to make all things new. That's what's going on here. Um, What's out of the question is patchwork Christianity, where you try to sew Jesus onto some fabric of religious traditions or trying to pour Jesus into the old 
wineskin of man-made religiosity and superficial spirituality. Just doesn't fit. It won't work. Both will be destroyed. Nothing will last. So that's the teaching of this uh, event that takes place. And so, some takeaways. And the first takeaway flows naturally from what we were just discussing. And that's, don't try to fit Jesus into your pre-existing religious forms. Don't try to fit Jesus into your pre-existing religious forms. Look with me in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. The reason why Colossians is so uh, applicable here is because the um, Colossian heresy that Paul was combating through this letter was a synthesis between uh, legalism, Ju Judaistic legalism, and uh, non-Jewish asceticism. This, this idea that if you punish your physical body, you deprive your, your physical body of certain pleasures, that that in and of itself wins favor with God. That's asceticism. Remember, John the Baptist was an ascetic, but he was an ascetic with a good heart. But notice what Paul warns against in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, for example. Therefore, and what's the therefore? Therefore, because what he says earlier in chapter 2, that for example, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is it. Jesus is our prize. Jesus is what our salvation is all about. And also in verses 8 and following, he talks about a circumcised heart. He talks about being buried with Christ in baptism and being raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The new birth. Salvation is not just adding Jesus to the status quo. Salvation is dying to our old self and our old ways and being born again, raised again with Jesus. That's what the therefore is there for in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ is what all of those Old Testament ceremonies were pointing towards. Jesus himself is the fulfillment. So once you have Jesus, you don't need all those types and shadows. Moving on to verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That's what Jesus dealt with in this question from the disciples of John the Baptist. 
They fasted twice a week. Jesus and his disciples did not. It was a form of asceticism. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So the Colossian heresy uh, was a form of asceticism with these other additions. But whatever the case is, the result is, verse 19, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments uh, grows with the growth that is from God. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the point. He's our reward. He's our great blessing. Then notice this last paragraph in verses 20 through 23. This is what is wrong with legalism. This is what is wrong with uh, Christless asceticism. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. And this Colossian practice that was trying to get people to uh, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, it was just as much the result of human precepts and teachings as the practice of fasting twice a week that the Pharisees practiced. It's human precepts and teachings. Things like these, they look severe, they look holy. Oh, why does that person fast twice a week? Oh, they must be really holy and godly, close to God. Why does this person to re, uh, refuse to eat certain foods? Oh, well, they must be super holy. Paul says, nope, doesn't have that use. In verse 23, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They, they look good in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They're useless. I'm sure you've heard the story of the great German reformer Martin Luther in his days as a German monk. Um, he took his Roman Catholicism seriously. And so when he would go and confess his sins to the higher-up priest, he would spend hours confessing his sins because he, he knew that he was so sinful. And once he would confess a sin, he'd think of another sin. And then he would think of the sin under that sin. Then he would think of his sins under his apparently good deeds. And he'd spend hours. And finally the priest said, come on, 
Luther. Come on, Martin, get, get a grip of yourself. And another thing that Martin Luther did in his days as a Roman Catholic priest, he made this pilgrimage to Rome. And he climbed up the steps of, um, I think it was St. Peter's Basilica. And after every, he climbed up those steps on his knees. And after every step, he would whip himself, flagellate himself, and, and confess his sins. And at some point later on in his career, he was reading through Romans chapter 1, and he came across that citation in Romans from uh, Habakkuk 2 and verse 4, the just shall live by faith. And he realized, man, all, this, all these times that I scarred my back and tore up my own flesh through this self-flagellation, it did absolutely nothing when it, when it came to my relationship with God. He's echoing the words of the Apostle Paul. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So don't try to fit Jesus into your pre-existing religious form. Maybe you don't fast. Maybe you don't flagellate yourself like Martin Luther did. But people naturally erect these systems, these religious systems that have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. There's American common sense-ism. And the problem is, a lot of Americans hear the gospel and they patch Jesus onto the fabric of their American common sense-ism. And they don't realize that the entirety of their being is corrupted by sin. And just patching Jesus onto yourself and continuing on with your life just with Jesus as this little patch ain't going to cut it. And what you need to do is to actually come before God and just do what Jesus said, to die to yourself. And you actually need God to cause you to be born again. You need a whole new fabric. You need a whole new wineskin to contain this new wine of faith in Jesus, life with God. Don't try to just continue on with life as it's always been for you and just add Jesus to this collection of idols, maybe, that you've had. doesn't work that way. Jesus won't fit. He requires nothing less than, than a whole new creation on your part. And we're all dependent on the grace of God for that. That's the first takeaway. The second takeaway is that fasting biblically is still a good thing. In other words, in this story, this account of Jesus' encounter with these uh, disciples of John the Baptist, 
Jesus doesn't do away with all fasting. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses uh, 16 through 18, he said, And when you fast... So Jesus assumed that his disciples would fast when it's appropriate. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then remember um, uh, in Acts chapter 13, the church in Antioch, they, they set apart Saul and uh, Barnabas with fasting and prayer for the work to which the Holy Spirit had called them. Mentions fasting twice in that passage. So fasting biblically is still a good thing. Fasting biblically means it's between you and God. You don't advertise it. It's not a reason to judge others. Hey, how come I'm fasting and you're not? I mean, that's literally what the disciples of John the Baptist did. It's voluntary, not a law. And it's an aid to prayer. Like in the uh, Day of Atonement, it's a, it's a way to help us to afflict our souls. Uh, if, if you're like me, you go without food for too long and you feel weak and, and crummy. Well, that's, that's the point. It's supposed to uh, weaken the flesh and strengthen our sense of need for God. But we shouldn't get upset because we might be fasting and somebody else is not. And then the third takeaway is beware of criticizing others for not being as religiously rigorous as you are. That's what they did. John the Baptist was religiously rigorous. So were his disciples as they were following John the Baptist. So were the Pharisees. And it's good to be religiously rigorous, to be conscientious about keeping uh, the Word of God, to keep a good conscience before God and men. It, it's a good thing to not give opportunity for the flesh to not even allow the appearance of evil. It, it's a good thing to be rigorous in that way. But that often involves specific details in your life that the Bible doesn't explicitly command. And so if you give up that thing and other people don't, or you do this other thing, and other people don't. In the name of being religiously rigorous, just make sure that you don't criticize others because you've reached a conclusion that they're not as rigorous 
as you are because of these specific details. Does, does that make sense to you? J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican bishop, said this, wrote this. We must be careful not to attach an excessive importance to the lesser things of religion. We must not be in a hurry to require a minute conformity to one rigid rule in things indifferent. That's the teaching of Colossians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 3, Matthew chapter 9, and many, many other passages. There's such a thing as the weightier matters of the law. Mercy, love, and justice. But fasting? Not fasting? Fasting twice a week? That's not included. So in closing, let's all remember that the point of our salvation is Jesus himself. And the smallest child can get that. The smallest child can realize, I'm a sinner. I do things like disobey my parents. I do things like lie. I do things like sometimes I'm not kind to other people. Even the smallest child can realize that and that what the, what the child needs, like the rest of us, is a brand new heart and a brand new life. And that's exactly what Jesus came to give. And the Bible says that whoever comes to him asking for salvation, wanting to be saved, Jesus will not turn away. So come to Jesus today. He'll save you. And he'll make you into a new wineskin and he'll pour new wine into that new wineskin.